Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Uh, we're going to jump into Colossians. We took a little break from Colossians last week to just address the 4th of July and talk about how we kind of sit in this space of being uh, citizens of the world that we're living in, but also strangers to the world we're living in because our ultimate citizenship citizenship belongs in heaven. We're jumping back into Colossians today. And so with that, uh, we're going to do what we've been doing for this series, which is just standing to honor the reading of God's word. I've asked my friend, Pastor Rob, to come on up and to be the reader today. Um, and so I don't, maybe him and Shirley, maybe just him. We'll see. I think she should come too. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Come on, Shirley. Come on. It'd be, it'd be great to have you. Hey, maybe you don't know, Pastor Rob was our executive pastor for a long time. Uh, and he is, he's the man. He's the man with the plan. So would you, would you just stand up and can we honor uh, this reading together? Yeah. Good morning, everyone. We'll be uh, reading from Colossians chapter 3, um, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1. And we're going to try something a little different here. Uh, we're going to go back and forth, verse to verse, okay? So have grace for us uh, as we do this. Okay, here we go. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands... Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Amen. Shirley, thank you for coming up. Oh, I appreciate it. You guys nailed the back and forth thing too. Didn't they? Yeah, it was awesome. So, uh, you know, turns out, Lord would have it, we didn't leave all of our controversy in last week. Uh, we managed to, the Lord and his wisdom managed to bring some of it into this verse today that we're reading into. And so I just want to, I want to level uh, sort of maybe some emotion or, or baggage that comes with some of these passages here. Because uh, I think it, it raises some natural questions like what is, what is the Bible's position on, on women and, and their relationship to their, to their husband or to men? And, and I think it also raises some question of like, is, is the Bible really pro-slavery? Like, is that what we're talking about today? And so I want to address this, but I want to address it a little more thoughtfully and with some tact, because I know that uh, spending some time in conversation with some people that I love and, and friends that I care about, uh, these verses can carry with them some, some baggage, if we're honest. Uh, there's relationship of, of men who have been very domineering or overbearing um, and have, have really used some of these verses to, to beat up or to bully women, for sure. 
Uh, these are the verses that some of the, some of the founding fathers of our nation, who, who, some of which were brilliant Christian men and owned slaves, which is, which is just mind-bending to me. I don't know how they were so ferociously in love with Jesus on the one hand, but then could be so off in, in treating human beings the way that slaves were treated in the founding of our nation. So it takes some thought and some tact to work through it. And, and honestly, th- these aren't the only verses in the Bible that that's the case for. And so before we even jump in, I want to talk about just in principle, how we can abro- approach the Bible and how we can do it thoughtfully when we approach difficult texts, because there are difficult passages in the Bible. Amen. If there aren't, then you read passages like, uh, you know, whoever's going to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. And you, if you don't think there's difficulty in that, then you're, you're missing uh, part of the gospel. You're, part, you're missing part of the gospel. And so uh, overarching from a, from a perspective of like what this book is and what it isn't, um, this, book, this book is filled with God's principles and commands. And as a general rule, it reveals to us God's nature, who he is who he is, what he's done, what he's done through, throughout humanity, throughout time. And so in that, what we can glean is we can glean a better picture of who God is, uh, but we also have to keep in mind that this book is filled with things that God says to do. And so from the get-go, what I want to say is that God has words for us at times in this book that are difficult to our flesh, but ultimately always lead to life. So we have to have this framework as we approach the Bible before we even really get into these passages today, that the Bible is not given to us uh, really just to frustrate us or to confuse us, but ultimately to lead us into what Jesus would call abundant life. That is what God is trying to aim us towards. Those are what his commands are designed to do, is to give us and bring us into greater depths of life. And so with that, I think there's a couple context things that you always have to ask yourself before you approach a verse especially when you approach a difficult verse. There's three kind of context questions that I just laid out. You can write these down if, down if you want to. But we have to ask ourselves, what's the context of the verse in question? Okay? So I don't mean to bore you with kind of like maybe what feels more luxury at the top of this, but I just want to make it clear how we can understand some of these difficult things is we ask ourselves first, now what's the context here? This verse, Colossians 3.18, that says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, does not exist by itself it finds itself with verses above it, verses below it. And so if we're going to try and seek to have greater understanding of what that verse means, we ought to understand what the passage is saying in its entirety. Really, what we're talking about today is the back half of Colossians 3. It, it, we can't separate it from what we've been talking about this whole time in Colossians 3. That is, as we seek the things of heaven, as we set our mind towards heaven and we try and live our life focused on heaven, not, not imposing what we know in culture up onto heaven, but rather let, let the rules and let the laws and let the way that heaven operates impose itself down onto culture. That's what we're after in chapter three. We are gonna put to death what is earthly in us and we're gonna put on the life that's found in Christ. And so in that, we begin to understand where Paul begins to go because the point of this whole passage today, 3.18 through 4.1, is to show us that once the gospel gets into you, it will always come out of you. And this is, this, that's the sermon in a sentence you could, you could leave right now. You're like, okay, got it. Once the gospel gets into you, it always comes out of you. And if the gospel is not coming out of you, then you ought to ask yourself the question, is the gospel really in me? Is it in me? So we have to ask ourselves, what's the context of the verse in question? But the second question that I think we always have to ask ourselves is, what is the context of the content? Here's what I mean by that. Uh, This this verse finds itself in a letter. This this verse, these passages that we're reading today, were not written to the church in 2020 in America. Now they were in some sense because it's it's the inspired word of God. And so it is always profitable for teaching, amen? 
But the original audience that this was written to does not hear the word slavery the way that the, way that the Colossian church would have heard the word slavery. We'll do some more work on that and we'll get there. But you have to ask yourself, why was this letter written? Who was writing it? What was their intended purpose? If you remember, the, the purpose of the book of Colossians is to have us consider that Christ is preeminent, that in our life, it should be Jesus over everything. Anything that we allow to creep up in value that, that robs value or detracts our attention from Jesus is wrong. It is off. We ought to pursue Jesus with everything we have, keep him as preeminent, most valuable, most loved, most appreciated in our life. That's the, that's the context of this passage. But every time you encounter a tough verse, you should ask yourself, wait, so where does this find itself? First of all, the verse doesn't exist by itself. What is, what is the story that's being told? But then what is the narrative of scripture that's being told? Uh, Kent says this all the time, referencing the Psalm, the sum of God's word is truth. And, and whole dangerous movements can be started by just isolating one text and building a theology around what this one passage says, neglecting the sum of God's word. And so we're never going to approach just one topic by looking at, okay, well, what does this one thing say here? We're going to look at the narrative that's being told across scripture. It'll always help you when you encounter difficult texts. Because I didn't say this before, but, but critics and skeptics love to pick out these, these little texts, don't they? When they're going to disprove the Bible, when they're going to throw shade at the Bible, they're going to go to maybe like a handful of passages and they're going to go, well, see, well, see, your God believes that. And what they're really doing, like if we can just be honest, what they're ultimately doing is they're trying to give themselves an excuse to behave a certain way by disproving what the Bible says in their mind. But again, we're not, we're not after what we think the Bible would say. We're after, after what the Bible actually says. And that's an important distinction. So we ask ourselves those two context questions. What are the verses around it? And what is the context of the content that this is being delivered in? But the third one, we have to ask ourselves, what's the context in my culture? See, because what this will reveal, if you ask yourself this question when you approach a tough verse, is you start to go, oh, my culture that I'm living in right now has created some bias in me. It's my upbringing, uh, the upbringing that I, the experience that I had with my dad, the experience that you had with your dad, the experience that we have in the culture that we're living in, in a post-feminism America that we sit in right now, that culture gets into us and, and changes the way we read scripture. And so when we ask ourselves that last question, we're not, we're not saying, well, okay, how has the Bible changed? We're saying, okay, what's happening in culture right now that's coloring the way that I see this book? Because I want to see this book. I want to see the words on these pages. I want to see them as they were intended to mean, not what my culture wants them to mean. Amen? Important context questions you ask yourself before you get to any difficult text and really before you approach the Bible ever. You go from this overarching standpoint of like, no, this, this book is meant to help me. And it might hurt me at times. It might cut, my, it might cut parts out of me uh, like a surgeon, and that doesn't feel good. But it's for my health. It's for my good. And I, I, I know that no verse is spoken in isolation. Every verse is spoken with a narrative being told, a story, a content, a context that it finds itself in. And my culture has made me put on certain lenses so that I, when I read things, I think of certain things that may or may not be there. Amen? All right, so with that, let's jump in to the passage. So starting in verse 18, before we even get there, we have to understand what the context is. And so we back up to verse 17, where Paul writes, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever comes after this verse, we know that what we are doing is we're aiming to do everything in the name of Jesus. 
Again, once the gospel gets into you, it will always work its way out of you. Paul is about to go into, and he's, part, and he's gonna start addressing all of our major relationships. So he's gonna address marriages. He's gonna address parents and children. He's gonna start in the home. He's gonna start in the home, and then he moves into this slaves and bond servants, which, which we'll talk about as we get there, is that that's really a good picture of employer and employee relations today. And so here's what you need to hear before we even start diving in, is that you are gonna need to hear this through the lens of grace, through the lens of the gospel, because there is nothing that will reveal your imperfections like your marriage, your kids, and your job. Those three areas of your life will constantly just reveal to you your need for a savior. Gosh, I look at some of the things that my kids are doing these days, and I look at some of the tendencies that are in them, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I did that. Like, I, I created that in them. It reveals this whole, there, there's, there's no relationship where I, am, I have the Holy Spirit reveal to me some of my faults and some of the places where I'm off, like in my marriage. Amen, a husband out there somewhere, right? I'm trying to help you out a little bit, okay? i give you some points here before we get going. There, you will need to remember that God has chosen you. God loves you. It's not based on the things you do. It's about the things that he does in you. But as he starts to do things in your heart, that's what we talked about two weeks ago, that as we start to put on the new life of Christ in our heart and we start to experience this transformation of our heart, of our values, of the things that we love, and the Holy Spirit begins to inwardly remake and rewire who I am, the first place where that's going to be felt is in the home, is in the home. So we go, the order here is critical. The order here is critical. We go in, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, so it's not just the verse above it. We got to keep in mind the narrative that's being told throughout scripture. So here's a few things that this can't mean when, when Paul writes, uh, wives submit to your husbands. It cannot mean that women are less than men. It cannot. It, he does not say uh, women submit to men. Keep in mind the context. He's writing to a Christian church. He's writing to believers. And he's saying, wives, you submit to your own husband. This does not mean that women are categorically less than men. It can't mean that. It can't mean that. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter one, we see that in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And guess who he gave the cultural mandate to? To, to go and cultivate the earth and subdue it. To be fruitful and to multiply was given to the man and to the woman. There is no less than, there is no better than. Male and female, he created them. Distinct, yes. Separate, yes. They are not the same. There's no gender fluidity going on here. He created them and he's given them some roles for sure. Like, like I, as try as I might, I can't bear a child. I, I thought someone would say amen to that. Like, <laughs> I can't. There are certain things about men that make them distinct from women. Generally speaking, I think when we get in trouble here is when we try to universally apply like personality types and strengths to men or to women. And so we say, well, men are typically, uh, you know, they're, they're stronger and they're, they're better able to protect and they're better at getting jobs and they're better at doing this. And so men do that because that's your universal personality. And women, you're more empathetic and you're more tender and you're more caring and you're more loving. And so you just raise the family. And what we do there is we eliminate the, the, the fact that God has uniquely wired each person. God has uniquely wired every person and so listen, like I've met some dads who are some of the most tender, caring, loving people in the world and their wives go out and get it done. And that's not a problem. That's not a problem. That's, God has uniquely wired each person. This verse, what it cannot mean, it cannot mean on the front end that women are less than or should be just completely subordinate to a doormat for men. 
And it's unfortunate that over time that, that there has been some patriarchal movements that have, that have made this that. And it's been used to suppress and to quiet women. And that's wrong. And we should be against that. But we have to ask ourselves the question, like this verse, it is here. It is here. It's in the book. And so what does it mean? Well, practically, what it means in my household is that, and, and trust me, Katie and I have had like a lot of conversation over this verse the last few weeks, knowing it was coming. And we just have a lot of conversation around this, this kind of concept, I think, often. And it's not this kind of wrestle. It's not this struggle. But it's just this thing that we want to know what, we want to know what God has for our marriage. And so in my house, the way this would work is uh, it does not look like me saying, uh, hey, you know, babe, Colossians 3.18 on this one. You best submit to me on this. Listen, I don't know if you know my wife, but if, if, if she, I said that to her, she would punch me so hard and I would so deserve it. Like, I, I would almost be like, dang, I earned that punch. Like, men, if you, are, if you are using this verse to reference your authority, you're already losing. Can I be that honest with you this morning? If you're making an appeal always to your authority, not to your relationship with your wife, then you are outside of how God has designed your marriage to work. You are not called to use this verse to continually go, hey, I'm in authority, hey, I'm in authority, hey, I'm in authority. Like, like when you have a boss that's like that, if someone's constantly begging for the attention for their authority, aren't you kind of just assuming like, wow, you really don't, you're just insecure in that authority, aren't you? And that's what's happening oftentimes. But so how this would play out, we talked about this even just yesterday. It, like if we reached a, a decision where we were either trying to decide maybe where to live or if we were going to decide on a different job, if we were going to decide some big life decision and we just reach a crossroads where Katie feels this way, I feel this way, then, then ultimately what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to make the call. And here, here's the beautiful thing. As I talked with like all the elders about this this week, as I talked with different people in different marriages, how often does that happen? It's never happened for her and I. I'm always considering going, okay, Katie, like, what do you think about this? What do you have about this? And, and not only that, she's always bringing things to the table as well. She's constantly saying, I was praying about this. I was thinking on this. I was wondering about this. And this is where it comes back to uh, the cultural mandate that for some of you women, and what, here's what we have to embrace is that there's some marriages that love to work where, where the men just make the calls and the wife is totally happy in that scenario. And she's just totally glad to go, honey, run with it. I trust you. There's other marriages I know that work beautifully where it's like, man, we're both just in eager submission to Jesus. And as long as that is happening and there's love and respect happening for one another, then, then they operate in a way that says, well, we don't really submit one to another. We just, we just are submitted to the Lord and we work it out. And there's healthy marriages on both sides. But I'm saying for us, what we do is I, I read this passage and I hear the word uh, responsibility. I hear the word initiative. And man, I think this is just absolutely true. And the reason I would feel this way is because if you go all the way back to the garden where, where the men should take some initiatives, should take some responsibility for the spiritual temperature of their household. And the reason I can say that with some confidence is because when Adam and Eve first sinned, if you remember the story, we're not gonna go back and read it, but it's in Genesis chapter three, if you wanna go there. When, when Adam and Eve first sinned and, and God comes into the garden and they hide themselves, remember? And when, and when God finds them, because it's like the worst game of hide and seek ever, right? It's like the three-year-old hiding on the floor by just covering their face, you know? And he's like, what, what happened? And, and, and God rebukes Adam first. God addresses Adam first. God pronounces judgment on Adam first. And so what I think that communicates in, in, to me into my heart is that I need to take some ownership and I need to take some initiative in my home to set some spiritual temperature. But what that, what that also doesn't mean is that doesn't mean that my wife just sits there and lets me run with it. 
Like my, my wife is so talented. She's got so many different gifts in her. And what that does mean at different times is my vision, my ambition for my job and my career and my passions, those take a backseat to her. From time to time, absolutely. She, she, is, she is involved in the youth ministry. She has times where she's preaching. Right now, her and some other young leaders in our church are all going through kind of like a homeschool style seminary with Pastor Kent. And, and all of that requires me to reorganize my schedule to go, hey, babe, this is important. You have gifts in you. You have things that God is going to do through you. You're, you're going to speak to people. You're going to, you're going to have the Lord do awesome things through you. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to stay at home with the kids tonight. I'm going to rearrange my schedule so that I can pick them up. I'm going to make sure you get some time so that you can get out of the house and you can pursue the things that God has for you to pursue. So, so like wives, you can, be, you can be respectful of your husband's leadership without being a doormat. And you can influence the things that he does without being manipulative. So, so while Adam, what he struggles with in the garden is clearly passivity, right? So, so Eve, Eve picks up the fruit. She gives it to Adam. Adam should have stopped and said, hey, where'd you get this? What, no, hey, hold on. What are we doing? He should have been actively involved in what was happening. And if Adam struggled with passivity, what Eve struggled with was independence. Why was she talking to the snake by herself? She should have asked her, she should have taken that. She said, hey, the snake said this, babe. Hey, what do we need to do about this? She needed, I don't know if she would have said babe, right? But like that's, she, <laughs> she should have pulled it aside for a second and said, hey, we're doing this together. We're on this mission together. We've been given this world, this garden together. Here's what was just said. What are we going to do? And, and I think that still works itself out in the culture we live in today. Where men, what we struggle towards is passivity. Listen, I've had a long week at work. I just want to come home and I want to put the game on and I want to chill out. It's like, you know who else has had a long week while you've been at work? Your wife, watching your kids. Amen? Like she needs you to get on the floor. She needs you to wrestle with them for a little bit. She needs you to pin them down and, and tickle them so that they can just leave her alone for a little bit. And this is, I'm, I'm in no way trying to demean like stay-at-home moms. I think that's one of the most beautiful and life-giving callings on, on planet Earth, important callings on planet Earth. But I also just want to say, like if you are a stay-at-home mom, part of what's in you is more than just ministry to your home. Ministry to your home is, is your primary area of ministry, but you've been given gifts far beyond just what happens in your house, women. Like you have things that you were called to do. You have things that you were called to build and to cultivate and to pursue. And, and, and men, the charge for us, the psalmist writes that our, our wives in Psalm 128.3, our wives should look like a well-watered vine. You think about that. I have this little plant on my front step and like to, to keep that thing looking nice, man, I got to like pluck all, the, pluck all the dead things off. I don't even know what kind of plant it is. What's in those baskets, those pretty little flowers that just like die in a day? What? Petunies? Petunias? What am I doing right now? Like that thing, it's like, it's beautiful for a day, right? And then they all wither. And if you don't pluck them off, like new blooms don't come. And if I don't, if I don't have, well, I make the kids water it, of course, right? But if, I, if we don't water that thing every day, if we water it too much, like, like men, our job is to, is to nourish and to see to it that, it, that, that our wives are thriving, that our wives are growing, that our wives are pursuing and cultivating different things. It's, it's not just something that happens in the home. It's meant to, it's meant to go forth into the kingdom. And so this is, this is, when I read this word submit, I also see this word uh, lead. I see this word uh, have, have, the, have the responsibility, take responsibility, take initiative in the things you're doing. And, and it's important to know like that culturally when this was delivered, um, it's funny. Again, we sit here in, in uh, post-feministic America, right? Where the feminist movement has, has done all sorts of things to the way that we like approach gender and marriage and all this stuff. And, and 
like you, you got to admit some good has come out of that for sure. You, you can be very against it in some ways. In some ways, I think you'd be right to be very against it. But in a lot of ways, you got to say, wow, there's some good things that have come out of this. But, but what we see when we go back to the scripture is that Paul addresses both parties. Paul addresses the, the men and the women, the husbands and the wives. Um, he, ex, he expounds on it more in Ephesians. And so we're going to bounce over to Ephesians for just a moment, chapter 5. Because I think uh, culturally, men would have been much more offended at what was written by Paul than women would have been. It was the cultural norm of the day that women submitted. Women, women had virtually no rights at all. Uh, I mean, women could be sold into slavery by their husbands if they had a debt to pay. And that's real. Paul, Paul, is, Paul does more to lift up women than maybe anyone in history. And so what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives, this is the charge to men, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water in the, with the word so that he might present the church. So he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife and himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the charge for husbands here is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Christ was willing to spend himself for his church. He, he, he gave up his life for his bride, the church. And that's, that's our model. And you can see that in, in the picture of marriage, a biblical marriage, what it should point to is it should point to the profound mystery of Jesus and what he gave up for his church. And, and, and like men, one of the deepest values of women is that they would be loved. And women, one of the deepest values for men is that they would be respected. They want your trust. They want to know that, you know, they want to know that you're behind them, that you're with them, that you're, they're saying, go after it, go get it. I believe in you. And, and men, our role should be look like, oh, man, we'll sp I'll spend anything for my family. I'll lay down anything for my family. I'll, I'll say, I know we got a lot of single people that, that have been coming to the church recently, a lot of younger single people, older single people, whatever. Um, here's, here's what you can glean out of this. There's, it's not like there's nothing in this for you, even though it's addressed to husbands and to wives. Um, what I would glean is that for, for women in the room, before you start looking for a man and you start looking at maybe his bank account or his six-pack abs or whatever it is, look, look and see, does he love something more than himself? Does he love Jesus more than he loves himself? I've said it for years, like the, the best eligible bachelors on the planet should be young Christian men because they have a practice of loving Jesus more than they love themselves. And they would give themselves up for the kingdom of God, just like they would be then willing to give themselves up for the woman that they might marry. And so young men, what do you want to work on if you're trying to find yourself a wife? Fall in love with Jesus. Practice giving yourself up for the kingdom of God. So that when the right girl comes along, you are willing to give up everything for her. Because that is what God is calling us into. That we would pursue him first and that our marriages would display the gospel. I also think that your marriage, um, even though we're kind of in this little moment here where it feels a little tense. Can you feel it? Right? Like maybe I would just say like husbands, wives, like maybe lock those elbows down for a second. Like don't, there's no listening for your spouse today, right? You're listening for you. But I'll also say it's important that you, that you enjoy one another. You enjoy one another. Like, it's okay. Like, there are verses like this. And this, this verse, I'll tell you what, like, it, it never comes up in my household. Why? Because this is my best friend right here. Like, my best friend. 
uh, in Song of Solomon, the wife writes like, I delight in everything in my man. He is my lover and my friend. He's my lover and my friend. Like I enjoy him. Ecclesiastes 9.9, Solomon writes, I, I love this. It almost works better if you read it out of order because he says, love the, the wife, or I'm sorry, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain, meaningless life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. And so here, here's kind of what he's saying. Life's meaningless. Praise God, he's given you a wife to enjoy some of this meaningless time on this planet. Like he's giving you a friend. He's giving you a companion. Uh, here's what I want you to hear out of this portion. God has not created this hierarchy where, where it's like men, then women, then children. But rather what he's created is laborers for the kingdom of God. Women are called to be a helpmate to their wife, not a sandwich maker, not a kitchen liver, not like uh, raise the kids while I go out and do fun stuff, babe. No, a, a helpmate, which that same word used for helpmate is the same word used all over the Psalms for Holy Spirit that together our endeavor is to be co-laborers for the kingdom of God, side by side, knocking the teeth of the devil in, chasing after all that God has for us, raising our house as best we can. Amen? So we move on then to the children. This one's much more easy because it's lovely we want to say like, oh, well, that one's just cultural, but I actually love the children one. That one should stick. And then we say the last one's cultural too. So anyways, that's a little foreshadowing, but we go on. Colossians 3, 20, 21 says, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. So children, uh, obey your parents. Even if they're not always right, even if they're not always right, you obey your parents. Uh, there's, there's a lot that's spoken to children around obedience and honor. Here's how you can differentiate the two. If you are living in your parents' house, if you're living in mom's house, you're living in dad's house, I don't care if you're 12 or 30, you're a child. You're a child living in your parents' house and you're obedient to how they set their rules. There, there's gonna be a lot of rules that, that you say, well, that's not in the Bible. Well, yeah, but you still gotta keep your room clean. You know what I'm saying? Honor your mom and dad. Honor your mom and dad. Be obedient to your mom and dad. This, this kind of flies in the face of our current cultural situation where, where what we see is that um, a lot of parenting is around just like letting your child be as authentically them as you can be. That's kind of the cultural norm right now, I'd say maybe in schooling and in the household where we just say, man, I just want to let my kid grow up to whoever they're supposed to be. Let me tell you, like the default position of your kid's heart when they're born is evil, is rebellious, is what, like all of us, every single one of us, that is the default, default position of our heart when we're born. And so what we need to do is we need to teach our kids obedience because what we are trying to model to them is that God, God calls for, God asks for obedience. And so we got to teach them rules, but then we also at some point have to show them grace. Because again, what it says, it says, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And I think this is specifically written to fathers because there are so many people as you talk to them, their image of who God is reflects some image of who their dad is. So your dad was awesome. You think God's awesome your dad was terrible, they have questions about who God could possibly be. So it says, fathers don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What this means is like, don't make so many rules that aren't rules and don't pretend that mistakes are sin. Those things are not always the same thing. Mistakes are not always sin. And, and if you are just over domineering with rules in your household, then you are going to discourage your kids. Uh, I've heard it said, and I can't even remember where this is from. I'd love to give them uh, credit for it. But, but being a parent is a lot more like being an archaeologist than it is an architect. An archaeologist thoughtfully tries to mine out what's already in the ground. Uh, and as parents, we recognize that God has made our kids, and I'm going to try and mine out what God has already put there. I'm not an architect, as in I'm not the one designing their life. 
I'm not the one who has the vision for exactly what their life should look like. And so I'm going to make them adhere to my vision for their life. And you run into those dads, you run into those parents that are trying to vicariously live through their kids. You're going to play football because I played football. You're going to do these things because that's what I did when I was a kid. And by gosh, back when in my day, when we did this and you did this and that's what it does. And it's like, hold on. Your job is to be an, ar- an archaeologist, to try and mine out the things that God has put into your children. Don't be so oppressive and domineering with rules and don't be so quick to label mistakes as sin. And children, you obey your parents knowing that they have a vision for your life that's greater than what you could possibly see. You are to obey and honor. I'm still in a spot where I honor my mom and dad. Um, when stuff's going on, when I have big decisions that I make, I'll, I'll call them. I'll call them and I'll say, hey, wh- what do you think about this? Can I run this by you? And that's me honoring my mom and dad by saying, okay, I'm not obedient to them in the same way that I was when I was 14 adhering to the 10 p.m. curfew in their house. And kids are always like, why is the curfew so early? Because nothing good happens after that time. (laughs) My mother-in-law always said, nothing good ever happens after midnight. I've learned that time is like, whenever curfew is, it's because your parents have good ideas and they say nothing good happens after 10 p.m., 11 p.m., 12 p.m., whenever that curfew is. It's because, listen, your parents, here's why they say that, because your parents have been that age before and they remember the shady stuff that happened to them or to their friends after that time at night. And so they have a vision, they have a perspective that's different than what you have at your age. And our call is to obedience. Exodus 20, 12, it's the first commandment with a promise. It says, honor your father and mother that the days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Parents are, are modeling, parents are demonstrating the gospel to their kids by teaching them rules, teaching them how to be obedient, but also demonstrating to them grace at some point. We're going to move on because we're running out of time, but Colossians 3, 22 through 24 ends this way. And this is where he spends the bulk of his time is addressing bond servants and masters. Bond servants obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by ways of eye service and people pleasers, but sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, then, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. We went through Ephesians last summer, and I covered this in in greater detail then, and so if you're interested, you can go back and look at it. But when we hear the word slavery, or when we hear that word bondservant, the lens that we have coloring our perspective is that of colonial slavery that was popular in America and, and in Europe, like when the country was founded. And again, you got to remember, culturally, the context clues, like that's not the audience that Paul is writing towards. Paul's writing at a time when in like anywhere between a third to a, a half of the Roman population were bond servants. And there's a few key distinctions between what would be like ancient Near East slavery and what we know as colonial slavery when we think of that word. The primary differences are that uh, ancient Near East slavery was always, not always, but it was mostly entered into voluntarily. So, so they didn't have like foreclosure. There was no like, there was no uh, filing bankruptcy then. But what you could do if you wanted to kind of restart your life is you could go give yourself over to a household and start to learn and work and be cared for by that person. But it was something that was entered into voluntarily, not the same as colonial slavery, where we just captured and imprisoned uh, Africans as they were shipped all over the world, really. It's not the same. It's also not the same in in the respect that um, it was not universally based on a specific race or ethnicity. So ancient Near East uh, bond service 
was just people who wanted to enter into it. It was basically part of the working class that, that, helped, that helped build and, and occupy Rome. It wasn't even the lowest part of the socioeconomic scale. That would have been the day laborer. The day laborer had no security in their job. They never knew when their next job was coming. But, but the slave could actually give themselves over to a household and they would be, they'd be taught They'd, be, they'd learn a trade. They'd give themselves over uh, for a certain amount of time so that they could learn a trade, so they could develop wealth. They could build their own wealth. They could develop their own um, like things that they would learn how to do. It honestly, uh, it kind of sounds like four-year college at this point. Or you just give yourself over and you're like, man, whatever you want to do with me, do that with me. And then, and then here we go. And you're going to teach me some things along the way. And, and I, I say that kind of tongue in cheek because I know there's just so much baggage with that word slavery, especially in the culture we're living in today. But, but I'm trying to paint the picture that the two are not the same. The two are not the same. And we shouldn't pretend they're the same. The last thing that makes them distinctly different is that um, the person who entered into bond service always retained their personhood. That was not true with colonial slavery. It was not, they were treated as less than, three-fifths of a person, Right? But in ancient Near East tradition, those person all, that person always retained their personhood. They could have families. They could do the things they wanted to do. Um, but they worked for somebody. And that's why the greatest parallel that we have in, in Scripture for what this means today is, is uh, an employer and an employee's relationship. And so what this tells us is that as employees, what we always have to keep in mind is that we are rendering our service as unto the Lord, not unto our boss. I mean, your boss is the worst. Your, your boss might be the worst. You know what I'm saying? But you are, you are not working primarily for him. You have somebody on the org chart that's above all of that, and his name is Jesus. And no matter where you're doing, what your position is, what your title is, I don't care if you're the front desk at some place that doesn't care about you, or you're like the vice president some, and you're some big deal. You do your work as unto the Lord. You're not doing it for just people pleasing or for eye service so that people recognize you. You are, you are rendering that work. You are trying to show yourself you belong to Jesus. And then what that means then for us who are employers, who actually employ people, what we always have to keep in mind is that person uh, needs to be treated in the same way that I've been treated by Jesus. So we're gonna be, I'm going to be as fair as possible. I'm going to treat them as well as I possibly can. I'm going to try and see to it that they thrive, that they grow and they develop, and that I don't just try and stifle or rule over them in some way that diminishes their life. Now, this is just good things to keep in mind. But here's what all of this boils down to is this uh, verse found in Colossians 3.23. We'll skip Philemon there for a sec, Judy, but uh, Colossians 3.23. I'm sorry, go to Romans 12.10. Romans 12.10. This is what these passages are all going to boil down to at the end of the day. It says, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. What Paul's showing us is that once the gospel gets into you, it starts to rearrange your heart, and that automatically then should start to manifest itself in the places that you are, in your home and in your workplace. And what it's going to primarily do with your relationships, whether you're a husband or whether you're a wife, whether you're a son or a daughter or a parent, whether you're an employer, an employee, we're going to outdo one another in showing honor. Because even though we still have these distinctions like male and female, and we have these different ethnic distinctions, ultimately what we see all over scripture is that those things become small when we consider that we have been reconciled to Christ. It is Christ that is over all. It is Christ that is in all. And so what my call now is as a recipient of that grace and a recipient of his mercy is to outdo one another in showing honor, to treat everyone with, with the respect of being an image bearer of God and to submit myself to God's rule and reign in my heart first and to let that see it play itself out in the world that I'm living in. 
Here's how I want to end, and I've gone a couple minutes over, and I do apologize for that. Um, I just want to pray for you, and, and we usually stand and pray, but I want you to stay seated at this point. And if you're sitting next to your spouse, I want you just to kind of grab their hand. If you're sitting next to one of your kids, grab their hand. If you're sitting next to one of your employees, don't hold their hand, okay? That's there's probably an HR violation with that. But I want you just to, I want you to grab hands with the person that you came with today, and I just want to pray for you. And God, I, want to, I just want to pray right now that you would bless the marriages that are in this room. God, I pray that you would comfort those um, who've maybe lost a marriage uh, and, they're, and they're mourning maybe even some of the hard things in this verse, or maybe that it was just something that happened that was tragic and it was hard. And I pray that you would be uh, this overwhelming presence to comfort those people. And for the husbands and the wives in this room, God, I pray, I pray that Good Shepherd would have just strong, godly marriages all over this church, God. And would you just have each of us just in full submission to you? Because when we are in submission to you, the fruit will always be good. The fruit will always be good. For the parents and the kids that I see all over this room, God, I pray that even if there's some relational strife right now, would you bring healing? Would you bring a desire in kids' hearts to be more obedient to their parents? Would you bring a gentleness and a tenderness and, and uh, uh, just a stewardship kind of mindset to the parents in this room towards the kids that are entrusted to us by you um, so that we might see them flourish one day? God, I pray for everyone who, who has a tough boss, who, who, who is the tough boss right now, and I pray that all of us would just, would just lay ourselves down at your feet and that we would see to it that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. Jesus, we, we love you and we give you thanks for the tough parts of the Bible. And we know that you mean them all for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 